0: Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Dr. Garrick Small on the topic Money and the Scriptures. This November 2009 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday evening apologetics lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Dr. Garrick is an economist and has taught at an undergraduate and postgraduate level in property finance, political economy, and property development. Thanks very much, Arlette. Okay. I'm going to pretend to be a fundamentalist tonight, I think, because most of what I want to be talking about is sort out of straight out of Scripture. And what I'm, I'm going to be doing is looking through uh, the Gospels and looking at all of the places where wealth featured in the Gospels. Now, there's a whole lot of those, so I won't be going through all of them individually, um, but I did go and write them all out, or at least the great majority of them, um, and then try to sort of categorise them I'm not going to be quoting a whole lot tonight, although we could do that and I might sort of pull a little bit out. And if you're interested in the references and all the rest of it, I can give you a list of what I'm working from later on. Um, So I was just telling telling Virginia a moment ago, I sort of put this all in a great big spreadsheet to try and make sense of it all as I was going along. Uh, Virginia, that is my love of spreadsheets in another life. Okay. Um, so the, the purpose of this is not to look necessarily at Catholic social thought or you know, developed um, social doctrine, but really just to come back to uh, what you find in scriptures. Okay? So that's a very limited kind of topic. One of the reasons that I'm keen on doing this, and this is a little bit of an adventure for me, and so when Arlette introduced me as someone who always talks about what I, things I know really well, well, this has actually come kind of new ground for me a little bit. Okay, so I'm going to be—I won't say stumbling around, but hopefully, what I want to be doing is sort of sharing with you some ideas and insights. and hopefully, we'll all come out with a more balanced understanding, and maybe some principles that come out of this question of wealth as we find it in the Gospels. My original plan, by the way, was to do the whole New Testament. Well, mate, I tell you, there's a lot to read and sort of to go through. So I kind of left that out. I might be making a couple of references to some other places. One of the lovely things about being a Catholic, I think, is that we tend to be very familiar with the scriptures without necessarily having it down chapter and verse and by quote. Yeah. And so uh, when I started to write these notes, I thought, well, you know, will I sort of go and sort of give the, the chapter and verse and the quote more? I thought, like, oh, I oh, be the T's. I can do that if you like, you know. Um, but by and large, we know the stories. And I think this is a, a very important thing for people to be confident in, uh, that by and large because of the way that we have uh, you know the epistles and gospel read out every week in church even if you don't do anything else you know all the gospels and sort of most of the, the content of the epistles yeah? uh, so that's kind of something which is sort of useful so so be, be confident of that one of the things that you find though when you start talking about money and all that grubby stuff uh, and you look at the, um, uh, the parables that are, that are brought out in the Gospels and so on you get this idea that money is really bad. You know, just, just think of you know, these, these places uh, in Scripture where you know, the young man comes along to, to our Lord and says, um, you know, uh, Master, what must I do to inherit you know, eternal life? And he says, well, you know, what have you been doing? He says, well, I've kept all the commandments. And then uh, Jesus you know, looks him in the eye and loves him and says, well, there's one more thing you could do. Let's give it all away. And the poor bloke is just kind of bowled over and he kind of walks off a little bit sad. Now, we sort of often tend to take that idea, that, that sort of simple idea, and then probably take it a little bit too far. There are a lot of other places, you know, matters of, um, you know, camels sort of going through the eyes of needles and all the rest of it. Rich people seem to get a bit of, you know, a short shift in the, in the scriptures. To the extent that in the kind of way that we think in our culture, you know, the West at this point in time, you could be excused for saying that Jesus was a bit of a left-winger, a socialist, really down on rich people. yeah, And you've got to be really, really self-conscious if you're rich. Yeah. Now, yeah, okay, that's a reading. I think it's a very limited one, and one which actually takes you a long way away from our Lord's intention. And we probably you know, know about... Um, you know some of the uh, uh, you know evangelical types that are very good at um, you know wealth theology and you know out my way there's Hillsong and then you had Robert Shuler sort of in the um, uh, uh, west coast of the United States sort of doing the exact opposite you know and saying well you know God sort of blesses you and so the more money you've got the more he's blessed and you know when I sort of flip through the, the the satellite channel sort of you know when EWTN's a little bit sort of quiet there's a whole bunch of other kind of God's quite sort of um, Stations that sort of come down off a, you know, satellite sort of thing, and uh, two thirds of those are all about wealth theology. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So, where, where do we fit? You know, is it Jesus the socialist, or is it Jesus the, you know, um, richer you are, the, the closer to the Lord you are, ultra right wing. We know that in the Catholic Church is in uh, near conservative uh, position. Okay, what I hope to do is kind of go through. Um, and sort of balance that. And so I'm not going to be using St. Thomas or uh, you know, the social encyclicals. All I want to do is just go through and, and look at Scripture. What I did was I, I, I went through the four Gospels, and I found that, oddly enough, there's not synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have a lot of references to wealth and a whole lot of economic things. When I read through St. John, um, I found it an absolute delight. I love it. But as far as for this project, it's just precious little. In fact, I couldn't find, you know, very much at all in there, even though in the others I found, you know, in some cases, especially uh, Matthew and Luke, every time you turn around, you kind of got all this sort of, you know, wealth stuff kind of coming out at you. So I'm going to be mainly uh, looking at, at, at Matthew, Mark and Luke, and especially um, uh, Matthew and Luke. And what you find is there are lots of parables and we're familiar with them. You know, the, the parable of Ten Talents, the, the number of parables about people owning vineyards and um, uh, uh, Lazarus and Dives and, and, and things like that. And what I, did, I went through and, and uh, looked at them and then on each one I wrote down what themes, what kind of messages you get from those. And I ended up with about... Um, Oh, a dozen themes. And what I want to do now is kind of go through those and hopefully develop them as a, a progression of ideas that eventually will get us to what I think of as a theology of wealth. That might be a little bit ambitious, but we'll kind of get to that. And then I want to sort of jump in um, and then apply that to uh, some current issues. Okay. The first thing um, I uh, like about um, wealth is that it comes to us as gift. And that comes from, uh, and again, you know, just to paraphrase, uh, look at the birds of the air. and no, they don't sow or reap, yet the Lord God feeds them. You're given all of the things that we need. Uh, and we find a number of other places um, like that. Um, when uh, Jesus starts his ministry, he uses Peter's boat. Now, we're kind of familiar with that. We just think that what that actually tells us. Peter had a boat. Did Jesus say, hey, "You know, give it away so you can come and follow me"? He, he actually did that, but he kind of went back to it from time to time, and we kind of meet it from time to time. Yeah? This is one of the kind of curious things that we sort of find. I'll be coming back. I'm sort of jumping in a little bit, a little bit uh, later on in in, in Mark. Uh, he gives a parable of a man who sows seed, and there are lots of seed-growing parables in in the Gospels, as we all know, but um, in uh, chapter 4, 26-29, there's a little story about the man who grows, who, who casts the seeds out, and then the seeds grow, even while the man sleeps. And what's our blessed Lord telling us there? That the wealth, which is those bags of corn, or, or whatever it is these he's going kind of to sort of come to, actually given to him. Sure enough, you throw in the seeds, that's work, but then what do you do? go home play Xbox, whatever they used to do back then and just wait, you know, until six months later they go along and, and there it is all there right? how much work? Did he actually grow the seed? No let's give him to it we're scientific, we say oh well you know that was kind of, you know, the sun and the water and the, you know, let what not carry but in fact there's this notion that, that so much of this wealth is coming from the bounty of God um I'm going to be coming back um, to to some of the um, uh, the parables that have to do with uh, masters and servants, but one of them is interesting in this context, and that's the um, uh, the ungrateful servant. You know, the chap who owed his master I think ten talents. And the master brought him in and um, and said, oh, you know, I'll give it back. And uh, uh, the master's uh, master sort of, you know, after he kind of, you know, the servant. Um, you know, post on him. He said, oh no, okay, I'll forgive you my debt. Huh? Well, if you look at that and think about it, it was really the master effectively giving that servant that, that, that tremendous amount of value. All of our property, all of our wealth, all of our skills, all comes from God. comes as gift. None of us belong, none of us own it. None of us have a right to it. I don't have a right to my arms and legs. we huh? our cleverness. Or anything. Some of us are born with many things. So the first point is that property is gift, and it comes very closely related to the bounty of God, and, and that's 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 important. The next thing, though, is this this you know self consciousness we have about you know having to give it all away. You know the rich young man. And when you look at um, a lot of these stories, the parables themselves, very few of them. Have to do with giving stuff away. And even the people that our blessed Lord dealt with, in so many cases, they were very wealthy people. I was looking at the, the story of Zacchaeus, you know, who came along, the tax collector. Now, he must have been pretty rich, because he could afford to give away half of his wealth, and then anyone that he ripped off, he was able to you know, repay them fourfold over. But does that say he ended up getting around in sort of rags as a result? Now often we sort of think, you know you give away half your wealth, you pay off anyone you've you've stolen from it four times, how much is left? Well, it actually doesn't say that he ended up reduced to pauperism. When you have all the parables about people owning things, the the, the chap who had the vineyard, uh, and there are a number of those, was the point that the vineyard had to be given away? Uh, this, the, uh, the parable. is fairly well known of um, you know the um, uh, you know the bad tenants. And I looked at that. I thought, wow, that's really fantastic. Because I'm a property economist, you see. I mean, you know, that's kind of leasing and you know rental values and all that sort of stuff. And uh, so I kind of warmed to that. But the point of the parable isn't that having that wealth, owning the vineyard, you have to. Given away in order to get to the kingdom. In fact, it was all about the tenants not paying their rent. Now, normally we think of, of landlords as these people, you know, with the black cloaks and coming in and sort of throwing out the widows and all that sort of thing, right? Because they don't pay the rent. Yeah? But here's a story about they should have paid the rent. And we find that in many places as well. So we have many, many parables... Uh, that are about people owning things. And it doesn't involve giving it away. We have many friends. Um, Lazarus, uh, apparently, was fairly wealthy. Joseph of Arimathea, you know, the chap who owned the tomb uh, that Jesus sort of did a short stay in. Um, fairly wealthy. Yeah.
1: Uh,
0: and many people in the early times. Now, when we get to the Acts of the Apostles, we kind of read of people giving away their wealth and, uh, and selling their land and distributing it among the poor. Okay, so that's sort of, again looking a bit sort of socialist and stuff. But that was something they did by choice, okay, not as a necessary part of their kind of Christianity. There's sort of something else in there, I guess, is, is the point. Yeah? And, and the real point I'm making at, at this point is that property comes as a gift, but then private property. Is recognised and accepted in the scriptures. Now, we're still a long way away from the wealth theology, but there's this notion uh, that the private property is supported, but it certainly isn't criticised. Now we've still got a problem with you know camels and needles and sort of the rich kind of having trouble getting into heaven and all that sort of thing. We've got to get to that. But the important thing is that we have to sort of see first of all, property comes from our blessed Lord. Because he loves us. We don't have any call on it. He tends to give us a lot more than we need. Um, I'm told that one of the places where the Muslims are kind of on the ball is that they get really cross with economists for saying that economics is about the allocation of scarce resources, you know, amongst people with you know infinite wants. Aristotle didn't like us talking about infinite wants because he would say that's disordered. But the Muslims are really down on this idea there's scarce resources. Why is that? Because in their case they would say God is, is merciful and, and bountiful and all that sort of stuff. He actually gives you heaps of stuff.
1: What was the word scarce
0: resources? Scarce resources is a, is a term that, that uh, uh, is common in economics.
1: The
0: it? <laughs> oh, what it means is that there's not very much um, around uh, in terms of um, you know food, clothing and shelter. All those raw materials we need to make things. And what we have to do is work really hard to find them. I'm
1: yeah? sorry,
0: I thought it was jargon. Oh, no, it is. Yep. Okay. No, 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 no. Simply that, you know, we have to work hard. Now, you see, the trick about it is that in in reality, as a result of original sin, we have to work to go and turn the things which are kind of lying around available to us into things that we can use. So I have a lot of friends in Fiji, and they have to work really hard because they have to You know, climb up coconut trees to go and, you know, get their food the morning, all that sort of stuff. Um, You know, and they spend the rest of the day just kind of lolling around and telling stories. It's really a lovely way to live. So the resources are there, you know, the coconut trees and all the other things that they need, but they do have to do a certain amount of physical work. Now, we're very aware of the work that we have to do, and that's sort of a preoccupation that humans have. And generally, I would prefer to get you to do the work. And that's when I sort of in in economics and say, well, that's because there's not enough stuff around and you have to do the work and I won't tell you that I'm sort of, you know, sitting back and getting you to do it for me, right? You know? So that's kind of the perception that we have. Um, but the, the point that I want you guys to think about is how much has God given us? Turns out it's a huge amount. Our difficulty is we tend to tie it up very often. We make it unavailable. I'm told that if we're allowed to uh, price diamonds at their real price... Um, you know, you couldn't exactly pave roads with them, but there's certainly, they come at a far lower price than, than what we pay for And we save up for years and years. to go and sort of buy, you know, one for our lady love, or, you know, engagement ring or what have you. Um, the price is kept because they're kept away from us, because of an artificial scarcity. And the same with a lot of the raw materials we find around the place. We have ample food in um, many parts of the world, um, you know, food is grown and then sort of thrown into the sea or ploughed back into the ground. And many, many places we have ample resources. Muslims are onto that. Uh, I think it'd be good if more Christians were onto it uh, because uh, God has given us a tremendous amount of bounty. The hard stuff is the work that we have to do to turn those raw materials in, into something useful. And we tend to like to get other people to do it for us. Now, when we get to the distinction, there between the stuff, the coconuts sitting in the trees or the diamonds in the ground or what have you, and then getting it into something where we can use. We're actually not talking about the wealth, the property, the, the raw materials, the things which God's given us. Right. We're talking about something else. We're talking about human labour. And so by distinguishing between these two things, what God has given us versus the labour to get it to be useful to us,
1: yeah?
0: On one hand we're talking about what God's given us, on the other hand we're talking about relationships between people. Sort of makes sense? That's a little bit of a tricky one. Because as we go further what we're going to find, or what I have to, 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 to get you to think about, it, is the way that God has been fantastic at giving us all this stuff, but then we get me and Niggly by trying to control other people to do the work for us. Okay. Let's kind of, um, keep moving along with this. Um, my, my point there is that uh, really property is gift, that we've got private property all over the place in Scripture. And if you want to, you know, we can sort of look at some more examples, um, but I don't want to kind of feel like could do it to death um, looking at particular um, cases and so on. But especially if we just take this, this perception, uh, or this, this, this perspective, even things like the, um, the parable of the, the prodigal son. And I was looking at that. The story is about the man who owns, you know, whatever he owns, and gives, you know, the inheritance, which I guess is half of his wealth, uh, to his son. was a wealthy boy. And the parable is not about the necessity of the, of the father giving it away. Now we know that's a par- uh, parallel that sort of speaks to us of God the Father and all that sort of thing. So we won't want God the Father necessarily to be poor. Although Franciscans kind of take that view, and I go along with it. Uh, but the point is that it's still okay for, um, you know, the, the father and the parable son to be, uh, prodigal son, uh, to be a wealthy man. That's, that's really my point there. Yeah? So private property is not, um, you know, spoken badly of in the gospel. When you get to the story of the rich young man, if we think through that. We say, well, what's going on there? Uh, you know, surely that is the, the, the proof text to say, that wealth is going to be an impediment getting to getting heaven. Well, to a certain extent, I think wealth can be, and we're going to sort of come back and look at the, the role of wealth in, in that particular uh, uh, you know, use. But with the rich young man, was Jesus actually saying that private property was wrong, or he wasn't going to go to heaven with it? Or was he actually making a more subtle point about that man's spiritual journey. I think what he might have been doing is noticing that that man had an attachment to his wealth which was going to be a real temptation for him in the future. And so while he could get to heaven with his wealth for that particular person uh, a bit the same way that some people are called to religious life and others to to other states in life and so on. Uh, for for that person, uh, that was something which was going to really help that person, uh, you know, in their in their spiritual growth. Because wealth is a temptation. Yeah? Okay, so now we're kind of moving along. We've got property as as, as the bounty of God. Property is gift. We've got private property as as you know quite acceptable in, in the Bible, Gospels, but we've got this notion that. Um, property can be a problem, an impediment. And this is where it starts to get gets really sort of warm and interesting, I think. There are a number of places in the, uh, in the Scriptures, uh, and again, I can give you, uh, you know, I've got a nice little page here. I'm not going to be able to find it quickly. I can sort of find some of them. Um, the obligations um, of, of wealth. Um, I'll go back to the, uh, uh, the case of the, um, uh, the bad tenants. In a sense, they were enjoying, they were using the, uh, uh, the vineyard. They had an obligation to pay the rent, didn't they? So the, the, the king, the, uh, the owner, would have been quite happy to have left them there uh, you know, indefinitely as long as they paid the rent, as, one, as long as they had honoured their obligations with using their wealth. Now that leads us to uh, another um, notion with this. And I think this this parable is kind of fairly pivotal. There's this notion of stewardship that um, comes through. This notion that when we have wealth, it comes as gift. We own it. But there is an obligation to use it um, with some sort of prudence. And prudence related to the will of God, ultimately. Okay, let's look at stewardship. In fact, I'm stewardship. Okay, let's look at some examples. Um, oh yes, in in uh, in Saint Luke, um, and and this uh, story sort of features in in a couple of the Gospels. Uh, the the notion of um, uh, the steward or the servant of, of the master who goes out to travel somewhere. In some cases, it's, um, uh, you know, the, uh, oh, anyway, well, whatever the, the master does. What sort of a steward, then, is faithful and wise enough for the master to place him over his household uh, to give them their allowance of food in the proper time? Okay? So here the parable is all about the master leaves the steward and goes away somewhere. To a certain extent, that's us, because we have this property, this wealth that comes as the, the bounty of God. We have obligations to use it responsibly. Okay, um, you know, many people that say you know, have either uh, businesses to run or families to run. Okay, there is sort of wealth there. You're going to be feeding your children, you're going to be paying your employees, and doing all those sort of things. Many places we have obligations. Okay, if we see our wealth as coming from um, our blessed Lord, from from, from from God. then we can really put ourselves in this parable. Uh, we are really that steward. What sort of a steward then is faithful and wise enough for the master to place him over the household to give them their allowance of food at the proper time? Happy that servant that finds him at this employment. I tell you truly, he will place him over everything he owns. Okay, what's that telling us? That when we have this private property, we have obligations to others with it. I'm going to be talking a little bit later about the um, emissions trading scheme and uh, how this notion of, of property. Um, you know, there, there's an appropriate way of, of dealing with property in an inappropriate way. But what's really what our Lord is coming. Um, is, is presenting uh, with, with this parable is this notion that we really do have obligations whenever we have something. Now that can be a physical thing we have. I might own a factory. I might own a house. My, my children's house or like my family's house or the factory that my employees own. It might be a farm. Just about every case where I own something, in one way or another there's one dimension of it which helps me personally. But there's another dimension of it which will be there for the use, the benefit of others. In a household, it's pretty obvious. You know, Fathers go out and sort of work and buy houses and provide food and all the rest of it, and they just give it to their kids. And I can understand having to go to confession if I was to starve my kids. Right? So that's kind of a fairly direct reading of this parable. Okay, I'm the steward, I'm not feeding the kids, not sending them the right skills, not doing this, that, or the other, whatever it is. And sure enough, I'm, I'm culpable there let's take it out a step further, let's take it, take it out to the, to the farm or the factory, okay? In a sense, if I own a farm or a factory, let's say I take the factory, I'm kind of parallel to a father-type role there. I manage the factory and I organise the customers and all the rest of it. I have my employees. Don't I have the same kind of relationship obligations to them that I would with my children? To provide them employment, because after all that gives them their livelihood, enables them to sort of care for their families. Yeah. If I drive down their wages or send away any that, you know, are sort of too, you know, I've got too many of them because I get some new technology that enables me to make twice as much for half, in, half, half the, half the labour force, what have you. If that's my total goal, am I treating these people that are kind of related uh, to my property Fairly. This notion of a just wage is the way that the Catholic kind of thinkers had understood that kind of obligation. It's an obligation to my employees as a just wage, uh, an obligation to people in general uh, through almsgiving, giving or obligations to family, sort of obligations through gift. This kind of develops an extra dimension um, to, to property and wealth. If I have a lot of money, if I have a lot of wealth, I mean, sure enough, I can have it, but I have it with a dimension of obligation to using it for the good of others. And that's very important. And if I have my employees and I treat them fairly and I pay them a fair wage, okay, it doesn't mean I have to get the same wage as them. Right? And because there's an important reason why I think, as the manager and all the rest of it, uh, it's appropriate for me to have a different standard of living uh, you know, to uh, sort of be the male boy. Not treat him like a slave and me like a king, but some sort of a difference. This is something that the medieval uh, mind had fairly well developed, this idea of appropriate place uh, in society. But it doesn't mean that I don't drive down his wages immediately because I say, oh, I'm, I'm the boss. You know, anything that um, I can get for myself is, is fair game. Yeah? There's a level of appropriateness. This is where kind of a certain level of prudence kind of comes in. Okay, um, this notion of oh, I will go a little bit into Catholic thought. Um, Catholic social thought has always um, held that private property is limited, and this big thing comes through the uh, Catholic social encyclicals, but also with obligation to common use. Now, this is what we see, you know, in parables like this one. That The steward has control of the property, and so at least on this life, if the, if the master is God the Father off in heaven, I don't see him. Yeah. So all of my life I might have this thing that I don't know is my property. It's mine, privately, but I have the obligation to use it for you know, these other servants of the master. Now again, if we put this into perspective of our blessed Lord as, as, as the master, it means all of my wealth is used for these other people. Now, what are the other servants? Is it just my employees? Just my own kids? Just members of my own tribe? No. Who was our neighbour? So those obligations go very, very broad. Okay. So now we have a, um, a, a broader um, understanding of property. That first of all, while it's gift and private property is valid, also this notion of obligation. And this idea that there's this appropriate stewardship. Okay? It's God's, so I use it appropriately, and I think the environmentalists have a, a, a reasonable argument there that I shouldn't you know destroy things just for the for the joy of seeing something um, being turned into a wasteland. Uh, but also have this obligation to, to other people. Okay. How do I use it? Well, this is where we get into what I think is, is a really delightful. Um, series of, um, of of insights into property that you find through St. Luke. And uh, I just hope to be able to go through these. And I'm going to be uh, looking at a couple of, um, of parables as we go. At least uh, one or two. Okay. In... Uh, I'll give you the chapter and verse. Um, Luke twelve, chapter twelve, verse thirty-three. And this sounds like the uh, the rich young man. Sell your possessions and give alms. Get yourselves purses that do not um, do not wear out, treasure that will not fail you in heaven, where no thief can reach it and no moth, moth destroy it. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also."
1: Okay.
0: Now we're going back to the socialists, aren't we? Yeah. There's a really interesting point about this um, uh, passage, which I think is worth thinking about. Okay. While we start off by saying sell your possessions and give arms, we don't actually say sell all of your possessions. We are sort of talking about giving arms. But the important thing, Is get yourself purses that do not wear out, and this treasure that will not fail you. Now, that's kind of interesting. If I pay my employees a just wage, I mean, just wage is one of these code words that you find in Catholic social thought, Uh, but you sort of we've seen it coming out in the scriptures. If I pay my my employees a just wage, I am really like this servant that we kind of read about who the master is going to be very pleased with, aren't we? Who feeds the other servants in their due time and gives them what they need. And what will the master give that servant? You'll put him over all he earns. Salvation. So, if I have treasure here, wealth, money, say so I have a factory or a shop or a farm, and I use that to feed my family and to care for them in an the appropriate, uh, you know, level, uh, you know, consistent with our community. But I use whatever's left over, especially if I have a kind of spirit of poverty, to give alms and to care for those people that are kind of under my care, especially think of employees in a business environment. Yeah. What am I doing there? I'm building up treasure in heaven. That's the treasure that no moth will destroy and no thief can take. And so what I'm actually doing is using my physical gold, factory, land, whatever it is. Yeah? the stuff that we kind of get embarrassed about because we're kind of like soft socialists. We say, no, no, no. I'm actually using that and actually converting it into a different type of treasure. I don't have to give it all away. Remember, you know, this is, this is chaos, wasn't necessarily a poor man when he finished giving away the four times you know, what he ripped off. Well, it means they have almost a spirit of indifference to her. Um, St. Louis of France, the um, king. Uh, and St. Elizabeth of Hungary, similar. Queen. Well, I think she was a queen. Noble woman. Um, they were both very wealthy people. St. Elizabeth did a pretty good job of, of giving away all of her family's wealth. Uh, so she kind of took it a little bit further than, than what I'm suggesting here. Uh But uh, uh, King Louis, he was able to sort of manage France, do an awful lot of good with the wealth that he had his disposal as king. What was he doing there? Building up treasure in heaven. And so it's not necessarily to be poor, but you do use your wealth in a way which is building up this very, very reliable sort of treasure. It's the only treasure that's important. And there's a lovely little line here, and I think I'm going to sort of write it on my bedroom wall or on my study wall or something, because it's, it's been sort of buzzing around my head for a while now. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, we've all heard this many times before. What are they saying there? You know, if I'm thinking about fixing the car and all that sort of stuff and I'm supposed to be praying the rosary and I do that all the time, Yeah, that's where my treasure is, mate. And I'll tell you why this is a problem, you know? But if I'm thinking about my treasure that I'm building up in heaven and the treasure I'm building up is how I'm using my wealth, my whatever other gifts and graces the good Lord's given me to help the people around me, again not necessarily by getting around in rags. good for some people. But however you do it in what kind of a capacity you're using your wealth to build up this, this treasure and that's fantastic. Yeah? Now, you can do that by still being a fabulously successful businessman. doesn't mean you have to be a failure. doesn't mean you have to go around. There are a whole lot of Catholics and Christians who go around sort of thinking that sort of hard work and really excelling at your work is somehow kind of embarrassing because that's sort of putting yourself, you know, above everybody else or what have you. And therefore you don't do it, that's kind of shy away. And I think it's an excuse for uh, not doing what the good Lord wants.
2: Just, can I just add there that I, I think there must be some... I was talking to an Englishman and he was raised initially as a Protestant before he became Catholic, and he said, my granny told me the wealthy won't go to heaven, or it's very hard for them to go to heaven. It's all right. It's good to be poor. And I'm thinking, well, I said to him, well, if you're poor and you're longing to have a better standard of living, then you are also attached to that mentality. And I have a problem that there's a, I I, I honestly believe that some people are using religion as a method of class suppression. Rather than liberation, and I don't mean liberation in the Brazilian sense, but liberation to actually
0: say, well, let's go forward, let's work hard, let's yeah, let's be wealthy, but also help others as well. No, I think you're exactly right, and I think you're onto an ex- excellent point, and I want to move on to that, and that's the uh, the importance of indifference. You can be attached to to wealth as a poor person, or attached to wealth as a rich person. You can go around all the time being so cross about all those rich rich people, all right? Uh, okay you don't have anything but does that mean you don't have an attachment to wealth not really uh, you're sort of so cross and you're going out and, you know, getting in the communist party or something uh, that's attachment and that sort of moves into this next point when I, I went through and, and, uh, and uh, took these um, these verses uh, the most one of the uh, topics I found one of the uh, themes was indifference We've just been talking about stewardship and uh, using your money for, uh, for for the good of others, for almsgiving and so on, and, and that care of others. Uh, but also this this point of indifference, like this the sense of indifference, and that goes right back to uh, the beatitudes. And uh, how do the beatitudes start? Uh, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now it's not blessed are the poor, even though poverty is is, is, is you know, a good way to actually get that and it worked very well for St. Francis and I think it's still very good for us to, you know, sometimes I think we need to actually do that practically, physically in some way to actually get us into a spirit of poverty because we are really attached, I'm attached and, and many people are attached to wealth regardless of how much you've got but the spirit of poverty is an attitude of indifference You know, St. Louis used to wear a hair shirt underneath all of his royal robes he had this spirit of poverty, even though he put on all of the pomp whenever he sort of went out and did all the things he had to do as king. And I'm told there'd be more than a few popes who have done the same thing. And so while they live in what appears to be so opulence, inside, they think, yeah, okay, I've got to do this because if I don't, it'll look a bit silly being king of France and getting around, you know, in, uh, in sort of uh, pauper's rags. People won't respect uh, my position. The kingdom won't operate very well. I won't be effective. And the whole sort of show just won't really function. But there's this notion of indifference. And there are many, many places where we have, um, you know, the importance of indifference, um, you know, sort of coming through. That actually started uh, even back with... um, uh, Oh, with with uh, with John the Baptist, I guess. Um, but um, give you just a couple of examples. Um, our Lord was, um, uh, was was very down on on things like um, you know that sort of fondness of um, uh, for wealth. And I'll just um, watch beyond your guard against avarice of any kind. For a man's life is not made secure by what he owns, even if he has more than what he needs. And then it sort of moves on. This is. Um, Uh, Luke chapter 12 um, 15 and following and there's a parable of uh, the rich man who, who did so well that he pulled down all his barns to build bigger barns and to a certain extent it's kind of curious our Lord wasn't saying he shouldn't have any barns at all the point of that parable was that when he pulled down his little barns to put up the big barns, first of all, he probably could have given a little bit of away, I guess. A bit of arms wouldn't have gone astray. But the real key to the problem for that man was that he said to himself, you know, my soul, I am comfortable now. I can eat drink and be merry. And our Lord sort of mentions, well, yeah, sad for that man because he'll die. Or he did die. Right. And so all of his barns and all of his affluence sort of did nothing. You see, he didn't turn his wealth into the treasure in heaven. He didn't have to become a pauper, but because he saw his wealth as an excuse for comfort, slacking off, uh, self-indulgence, that's where he lost the plot. The same thing with Lazarus, oh, like Lazarus and the Divas. Uh, the, the poor man you know, living outside, and just sort of dreaming of, of eating the scraps that fell from the from the rich man's table. When the rich man you know, ended up, um, we think in purgatory as I understand it, what sin did he commit? It wasn't that he was rich. It was simply that he didn't use his wealth to store up the, the treasures in heaven.
1: Yeah?
0: And so he could have remained rich, given the poor man some of the scraps off his table, and made him be there in salvation. Yeah? And so this is the problem, that if you have this preoccupation, this attachment to your wealth, okay, that's when you lose the plot. And that's where those treasures in heaven uh, cease being um, you know, stored up. Now, I've just mentioned private property. Uh, along the way, we've mentioned um, just wages a couple of times, and we see that. We also see uh, just price. We see that a number of times, especially when the word extortion is used, and we find a number of examples of that uh, going through. And that starts with uh, John the Baptist, uh, back at the beginning of Luke's uh, uh, Gospel, Um Chapter 3, sort of 10 to 14, uh, John the Baptist uh, speaks to a number of people and he's really talking about um, well, a lot of think, economic advice, really. Uh, he sort of talks about um, being uh, happy with the wages that you earn for soldiers. He talks to, um, and, and also for tax collectors, charge only your rate. And what he's saying is it's okay to be a tax collector as long as you only charge what you're supposed to and not charge that extra. Well, you see, we can apply that charging extra to lots of situations where we're buying and selling. And, you know, that's what comes down to us as the the principle of the just price. See, if I could sell you, you know, this glass of water and you were really thirsty, you know, for $10, it only cost me, you know, 20 cents or something. You know, glass of water is one of my favourite examples of this sort of thing. Okay, (coughs) It's just like the tax collector, who is entitled to collect... Collect a certain sort of income from his work, but when he uses his position of economic power to extract more income, you know, we call it extortion. Extortion is still selling you this for the ten dollars or whatever. Right? It's all extortion. So this notion of a just price we find over and over again. John the Baptist um, sort of really begins it. Um, Jesus, uh, uh, when he sort of spoke to the uh, to the, um, the Pharisees. Uh, a number of examples uh, where he talks about extortion. Um, in the uh, in the verse, uh, you know about the uh, white sepulchers, and, sepulchres and uh, you know you clean the outside of the, the, the bowl. That's all about extortion. You Pharisees who swallow up the property of widows. Whatever reason, it's extortion. I just want to come back and talk a little bit about the uh, the parable of uh, you know the vineyard and the and the fellow went out to get the, the laborers, went out in the morning, went out in the afternoon, went out you know at lunchtime, and each time he, he got the, the laborers. Now, isn't that a really weird parable?
1: Yeah. Very hard to a secular mind in that yeah. in this
0: day and age. I think that is a really curious one because on one hand you think, okay, then that's the difference between between justice and charity. You know, in the, in justice he, um, he owes the, uh, uh, the people um, you know, the the, the day's wage as you know, for the people who work all day. But then in charity he's kind of given this extra almost like an arms to the people that come in, in the afternoon. That's one way of looking at that. But there's a really interesting way which is a little bit kind of deeper uh, of looking at that which really, really I think sort of nails in this idea that our Lord has the intention of people being paid a wage because of their human dignity, not because of necessarily what they pump out in the day. If you think about it, it'll start to, the penny will start to drop. Yeah? That master, the the vineyard owner, what does he do? You just think about those those people that he hires. He hires people in the morning. He goes out and there sort of might be people down there in the market place or the piazza or whatever it is. Okay, and he brings them in to go and do his do his. Um, uh, uh, picking, the, picking the grapes for him, that's fine. Then he goes out at lunchtime, he goes out in the afternoon. Think of those people that sort of, you know, were there in the afternoon. They're still human beings. They've got two arms and two legs. A lot of them would have had families. Maybe those people have been sort of traipsing around, we don't know. But maybe they had been sort of traipsing around trying to find work that morning. And ended up in the piazza after everything else had failed. And they would have been going home to sort of feed their kids nothing that night.
1: So, Garrick, are you saying that that, in that case was a just wage and and God would not pay less than a just wage? Yeah. Okay. Mm. Now, this is
0: something that takes a little while to see the cat, I think, for this one. But, you see, if you see people that the just wage is partly for what you do but partly for your willingness... To, to, to apply yourself, and partly simply for your human dignity. Then you've got a completely different take on, on the way we pay things. Now, in our community, we already do that to a certain extent, because you know people that don't get a job, we sort of pay them the doll and people that have lost a leg or something, we'll pay them sickness benefits and so on. You know? So we kind of have a consciousness of this. But I think it's something more and sort of fuller and sort of gives you more of a, of a theoretical um, framework to work in, when you have this idea of, of just price, and the Catholic world has really developed over a long way, but this parable, I think, is just a really lovely example of it.
1: Yeah? Would it also be uh, correct to add another dimension that they paid according to what they actually need for their subsistence?
0: Absolutely. No, you're, you're, you're right. Yep, yep. And, and this is where you see if, you, if you're thinking in terms of the worker who has the family to feed, and even though he's been traipsing around all morning, he's willing to work. He was there in the afternoon looking for work,
1: yeah.
0: uh, and then the uh, and then the master brought him home. Sure enough, he didn't have to pay him the full pay, the full pay, but in a sense, respecting and understanding his, his human dignity, his needs, and a certain extent his, his willingness to work, um, you know, is what got him paid. Uh, this is sort of like a bit of a personal kind sort of interest to me. And I don't want to waste too much time on it. But at one stage, when I was, I was sort of very much on the right of politics, uh, it used to sort of strike me as kind of peculiar why everyone wasn't paid on, on piece rates. You know, like a salesman, you know, on a commission. You know, if you do a whole lot of work, then you get a whole lot of money. If you get a little bit of work, you get a little bit of money. That, that to me, seems really fair. And I was kind of really big on, on, on fairness and justice and all that sort of carry on. Then I thought about somebody, uh, like someone serving in a shop. Yeah. You know, you might be there, you know, in the newsagents or you know, an afternoon job for you or something, right? Do you have any control over how many people come in and how many newspapers you sell?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And, you know, in the fullness of time, it'll all kind of work out and sort of balance around, but you see, there's a kind of like a dimension of, of inequality or unfairness, injustice. If you were to pay that newspaper... Like the person at the counter, or the person at the counter at Woolies or something. You know, 80 percentage on exactly how much went through there till that afternoon. Yeah? And again, you've got to have a little bit of sort of business kind of nouse about it. You can't sort of take this too far. But the, but the important thing about it is that there is some kind of work that we do where being paid on exactly what we produce is useful, and sales is an example where it's, it works fairly well. Sometimes you get fairly extreme. But then there are other places where simply being there is really important. Like a nurse on night shift. And you might be just kind of sitting there waiting for someone to, you know, sort of ring a buzzer or what have you. Should you only be paid for every buzzer that buzzes? You know, And don't you see that in some places where they've kind of shifted the focus, in a lot of shops especially, you know, where you kind of walk into like a menswear, wear, or like a women's wear, or like a clothes shop, right? And people all of a sudden sort of start to kind of hound you and sort of, you know, don't let you out of the shop without buying something. They're on commission. Well, you yeah, know, that's not quite the right way to run a shop. There's something kind of just not quite social about that, is there? Yeah. But if we're going to have people sort of paid simply for being there, like the, like the nurse who is simply waiting for the buzzer to go, then it means we're in a situation a bit like those, those employees that kind of come in late for the vineyard. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. And especially it means you have a little different focus doesn't mean an absolute socialist kind of focus where everyone gets paid regardless of whether they do any work or not. It does mean that there are sort of these different elements. How much you produce, uh, you know, what your needs are, um, your human dignity, and what you're prepared to do. And to a certain extent, standing up and waiting for work means you're just as willing as the person who's actually digging in the trenches. And that's what you see in those, those vineyard workers. I think some of them would have been willing, but they simply didn't have the wherewithal. And I, I find that really interesting, and, and I think there's a lot of depth in that, uh, uh, in that parable, from an economic point of view. You know, you wouldn't get... It's not appropriate, I don't think, for a priest to give that on a sermon on a Sunday morning to, to most people. But it's there, and it's really delicious. It's really delightful when you see it. So it really does give you this depth of, of, of what uh, Catholic social thought is all about.
1: Yeah.
2: Your example about uh, the shop the system better on a commission. I mean, if you take the liberal philosophy, the world is really all about people here maximising wealth. Everything else gives way to that, the people maximising wealth. The government's set aside, regulations are cut back, so individuals can maximise their wealth.
0: Yes, so yes. That, that's
2: how far away we've got.
0: No. And you see, we're using wealth... Um, there is, there is a lovely um, idea here. We started off looking at um, uh, the, the notion of building up the treasure in heaven,
1: yeah?
0: where we're using our wealth to convert it into a different currency, you know, this eternal currency. Whereas we've got this other mentality, which is exactly what you're kind of um, pointing towards, which is where we're using wealth as a weapon. That's the Industrial Revolution. And that's why we had so much misery in the West, especially in, in, in England. Um, you know, over the last few hundred years, wealth was used as a weapon, not as something which built up treasure in heaven. And again, I'm not against people becoming rich. You know, it's but quite interesting. Two things um, that uh,
2: our colleague here talked about was that I, I just noticed in the last few years the trend to only employ people on an ad hoc basis. You know, we only need you for a week. Next week, no job. Yep. And the, uh, going back to England, they made it illegal for uh, English people to uh, fish in lakes and
0: shoot rabbits or whatever they had to do. And I thought that was a bit funny.
2: Why did they do that? And they made it criminalised.
0: Oh, well, you see, the advantage of that is it pushes wages down. And it's the same reason why um, Aboriginals were kind of hunted in Australia because they made lousy employees. They didn't work enough. It's the same reason you've got a problem in, in Fiji. Uh, today we've got a problem in Fiji. Why? Because the British brought in uh, Indians versus slaves uh, to be workers there because the Fijians were sort of clever enough that they knew they didn't have to work that hard. Whereas the, the poor old Indians were kind of brought in and you just create these problems that you know, are going to take probably centuries to, to resolve. Um, no, you, you're exactly right. Okay. Let's just kind of work through. Um, we've got this notion of um, uh, of building up these treasures in heaven. Okay, and this in, in Luke's gospel we go from, from about chapter uh, twelve up to um, the other side of uh, the um, uh, about chapter sixteen, I think. I just want to yes, chapter sixteen. Let's kind of work through this progression of ideas. Now I don't know if. if Saint Luke really intended this to be an economic treatise, but just in this little part, there's this is really delightful, um, you know, a development of an idea of what you're really meant to do with wealth. Yeah, and I think this is really—it's just—it's it's, it's fantastic. Okay, got this idea of, of building up treasure in heaven. So we've got this idea that we're actually converting this wealth, um, you know, from the from the wealth that we've been given as, as gift, into this um, thing which is really going to do us some serious good uh, in, in the hereafter. Okay. In Luke, immediately following that, is the, uh, is the parable of, um, of being ready for the master's return. You know, the idea of uh, you know, the servants being uh, you know, at work doing what their master wanted them to do while the master was away. And we mentioned earlier on. Okay, so it's the good servant, and the servant is going to be rewarded, who, when the master comes home unexpectedly, like a thief in the night or whatever, you don't know when he's coming back but you'll find us using our situation appropriately. That means we're going to be using somebody else's wealth for what it's supposed to be used for, what the boss wants for. Now that's building up treasures in heaven, and you see that's exactly our situation on earth. We might have a whole lot of wealth, uh, but if we use it, if we're indifferent to it, so we see ourselves as simply managers and stewards, um, then we're going to... um, uh, we know when the Lord comes and, and, uh, and actually sort of takes us home and sort of asks us how we're, for a bit of an account of ourselves, uh, then uh, we're going to be able to uh, be a little bit more confident what's going to happen with us. And uh, in St. Luke, around, uh, this is uh, chapter 12, um, around sort of verse uh, 47, 48. He actually expands this to say that the servant... Um, you know may kind of goof off for a number of different reasons, either because he's slack maybe because he's ignorant um, and, and so on. And uh, you know St Luke actually sort of teases it out. there'll be different strokes, uh, different uh, punishments for the people who do not. A servant who knows what his master wants but has not even started to carry out those wishes will receive very many strokes of the lash. Uh, one who uh, did not know, but deserves to be beaten for what he has done will receive fewer strokes so kind of like ignorance Um, when a man has a great deal given to him a great deal will be demanded of him and so on and when a man has been given a great deal on trust even more will be expected you see that's our situation in all respects of our life not just in physical money Uh, although tonight we're we're kind of focusing on on the money aspect of it (laughs) Okay, I want to move on to a parable which I thought was... Um, oh, by the way, as we go through that, um, uh, we, we, we come uh, across some of the other familiar uh, references about um, the uh, the eye of the needle. I don't think I'll be able to find it here. But what I want to move on to, uh, well, I was familiar with that that, that, that being rich is difficult because it's very easy to become attached to our wealth. And that's the problem with the young man. It's not the wealth; it's the attachment to it. It's not being indifferent to it. Okay. But then we get, and I'll just move along to um, to chapter chapter 16. Um, I'll do that, and then I'll. Oh no, I'll do the prodigal son. Prodigal son's really (coughs) interesting. I never thought of the prodigal son as a wealth parable. That's not what you associate with it, do you? You think about it. Okay. First of all, the father he gave away half his wealth, that's fine. But uh, did he have to give away at all? No. Okay? But let's look at the son. The son took the wealth of the father. It was a gift. Okay, he was he had a right to it, of course he was the son. In the same way that we might sort of think we've got a certain right to the bounty of God. And, you know, there's kind of a bit of an argument to, to support that. Yeah. But the son took the wealth of the father, half his wealth. Yeah? And he went and spent it just want to go to the the very end of this okay just I want you to just kind of link it together with this idea of treasures in heaven now okay I'll, I'll just read you the verse right at the very end of um, the prodigal son um, this is uh, chapter 15 um, 31 32 the father said my son you're with me always and all I have is yours this is when he's talking to his, his good son But it was only right we should celebrate and rejoice because your brother here was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and now is found. Now you guys know that. You've heard it sort of dozens of times and you kind of know the, the normal sort of associations we put with it. But I want to put a different sort of spin on it. While the son was away, was he rich or poor? Rich. Rich. He was attached to his money. He was using it for his own good. And he was dead. He comes back wandering over the hills and all the rest of it in his rags, kind of probably smelling of you know pig poo and all the rest of it. He was poor. But what was he? Now he's alive. Isn't that curious? That you see, the treasures of earth Don't give your life. But in this poverty, in this particular case, this man came the the, the boy, the son, came back poor. He had an openness to God, an acceptance of of, his father's will, an acceptance of his understanding of of what it was to be a part of the family. He was now fitting in to to the family, to the values, to, to, to living the right life. Okay? He had life. He had transform that 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 the poverty of his wealth which was causing him to be dead to this treasure that he had as coming back and he got the ring and the, the gown and all the rest of it. Yeah? His life came through a form of poverty. It's a delightful kind of irony or a, or a paradox. Yeah? But it really kind of I think underlines this notion of building up treasure in heaven. Yeah? Because the physical wealth can be transformed into this eternal treasure, and so the the, the the prodigal son, you know, while I don't want to take away anything from the normal interpretation of, of of the of the parable, it has this lovely dimension that sort of fits into this notion of building up treasure in heaven,
1: yeah?
0: uh, and especially um, you know the way that uh, this um, when we're given this stuff, you know, the father gave the son this stuff, he actually used it and ended up dead. Now, immediately after that parable, you have the crafty steward. Now, this is a really curly one. right? This is the story of the, uh, the chap uh, and I'll read it out to. There was a rich man, and he had a steward who was, who was denounced to him for being wasteful of his property. He called the man and said, What is this I hear about you? Draw me up an account of your stewardship.
1: Yeah?
0: And the steward said to himself, now that my master has been taking the stewardship from me, what am I going to do? Dig? I'm not strong enough. Go digging? So what does he do? He brings in the master's debtors, and he writes down their debts. Most of us think this fellow's dishonest. You know, what's our blessed Lord doing? He's, he's kind of—he's he's lost the plot here. He's actually recommending thievery to us. You know? Has the crafty steward actually stolen anything? What do you do? Then he called in his master's debtors one by one. To the first he said, How much do you owe my master? One hundred measures of oil was the reply. The steward said, Here, take your bond, sit down straight away and write fifty. To another, And you sir, how much do you owe? One hundred measures of wheat was the reply. The steward said, Here, take your bond and write eighty. He didn't steal anything. And in fact, this steward would have been doing no more than he had the right and authority to as the master's servant. Because remember, the stewards here were like middle management. This could be, you know, the manager of the, the, I don't know, um, local Westfield or something. This is a person with a fair bit of authority. He was able to make decisions and sort of manage the, the master's affairs. Now you think about Kmart manager in there. Okay, there are occasions where he'll look at something, you know, slow-moving stock, and he'll say, "Okay, then, you know, this normally sells for twenty dollars. Let's write it down and sort of move it off, and we'll sell it for fifty or ten or whatever it was. Let's say twenty, ten, whatever. Okay. It's totally within the competence of that manager for Kmart to take the thing which should be sold at twenty and sell it for ten, isn't it? That's not theft. It's not lying." Now, for that manager at Kmart, if he's looking for another job, and some people come in and sort of buy all these things, camping gear or whatever it is, at $10, he oh, this is a nice bloke. i will be buddies with him. He hasn't stolen. He's working totally within the confidence of, of, of the authority that he had. And in fact, the master even praises him later on. The master didn't end up poor as a result. I mean, the fellow's okay. He's sort of lost 50 measures of wheat and, and whatever else he met. But when you think about that. It may have been the profit he might have been making. He still may have been making a bit of a profit. I mean, with the Kmart example, um, you know, the thing might have only cost me five dollars to put it on the shelf. I wanted to sell it for twenty. Now I'm only selling it for ten. You know, have I cost Kmart anything? They're still making ten for five bucks, aren't they? Actually, there's another aspect that that money might <coughs> be retrieved because mm-hmm. the the money
1: for what was owing to the master might never be retrieved. That's a good point. It's better yep. to have some of it than none of it. Well, if uh, normal it, it yep. drives out, more can happen to the people that
0: owe it. No. Uh, and, and that's a, another example. In fact, that's a good example of what today would be considered as sound financial management. This idea of sort of managing not just discounts, but also credit receivable. Better to get a bit of your money back rather than lose all of it. Yeah. So the point about this is that this servant is not a... He hasn't done anything wrong. Yeah? Even though he's done something which, under the circumstances, you say, well, I know what he's doing. In. He's not doing it for the right reason. Yeah? But he's actually not doing anything wrong. He's not doing anything beyond what the master had empowered him to do. And then the master goes on and he says, um, he praises this honest servant for his astuteness. For the children of this world will be more astute in dealing and, uh, with their own kind than the children of light. Okay, that's fine. Now, we, we, we're all familiar with that parable. Um, the next part is really interesting. And often we kind of skip over We Usually we're sort of really interested in, in that first section. Remember, this is following hard on the heels of the prodigal son. We've just got this example of this fellow who appears to be a thief but really isn't fact as a shrewd financial manager even though he's doing it to you know organise himself his next job but how does he organise himself his next job by ending up making good terms with his master's debtors okay? Now we get to the next part which is really the interpretation and I'll tell you this use money tainted as it is to win you friends and thus make sure that when it fails you they will welcome you into the tents of eternity they will welcome you into a of eternity. Treasure in heaven. And so what he's saying here is that the purpose of wealth is to make friends with. And you see, this is the opposite of what is so easy for us to get in the habit of doing. We use our wealth to pump ourselves up. And often, we use our situation, you know, my factory or my farm or something, to run down our employees and to squeeze the last bit of, of income or revenue out of my, my customers.
1: Yeah?
0: I'm not making friends doing that. I'm exploiting those others, not expressing solidarity to use kind of Catholic terms. okay. Um, but what our blessed Lord is saying here is that use money, tainted as it is, to win you friends. That is the purpose of wealth. That also makes sense of the master who was waiting for his servant to, to give the other servants their food their due time. Makes friends with them. You know, to do good for
1: them. I'd just like to make another point that might be a little bit um, removed from the, the economics of it all. And is that it's always a, it's a very, very subtle thing that people like, you're talking about building treasures in heaven, but if you're pharisaical so about it, you can do things like Virtuous things, giving, giving, like the, the widow's mite, for instance. Like the Pharisees were castigated because they gave what they could afford, but to them they were giving in measured amounts, which looked like a generous amount. Whereas the widow gave just a little bit. But the thing is, what I'm trying to get at is that you can go around doing doing good deeds and and giving arms and all of that to gain yourself brownie points mm-hmm. in heaven mm-hmm. with that mm-hmm. kind of economic mentality. But there's a subtle point there, that's not why you do it. You don't do it only to to get your brownie points for heaven, not only for that.
0: And you know I think because you're quite right so. that this notion of indifference and the spirit spirit of poverty is really first so yeah no I think maybe that didn't um, come out as I was, I was sort of talking about this treasures in heaven stuff but you're exactly right there really is this indifference it has to be the motivation of charity you know St Bonaventure used to say it's um, very hard to treat your brother justly if you don't first love him yeah. and this is this notion that you're doing it you're giving him justice because you love him first not because of justice or not because of something you're going to get out of justice and so love comes first uh, you're exactly right. Let's let's go a little bit further with this, and um, and this will kind of just about wind up what, what I want to cover. Because what I want to do is then kind of bring this back in, into an overall um, you know view of what we're doing, or what the, what the purpose of wealth in the, in the Gospels is. There's another little 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 twist in here. Um, the man who can be trusted in little things can be trusted in great. Now we all know that quote. The man who is dishonest in little things will be dishonest with great. That's fine. If you cannot be trusted with money, that tainted thing, who will trust you with genuine riches? Now the next one is really important. And if you cannot be trusted with what is not yours, who will give you what is your very own? What's he talking about there? If you cannot be trusted with what is not yours... This kind of brings us right back to the full circle. What is not ours is all of our wealth and our arms and our legs and our intelligence and all the rest of it. We don't own any of that stuff. We've got no rights to it. That is what God has given us freely pretty much as a test. That's kind of one of the other things that sort of came out and there are a number of other places in Scripture that we could uh, uh, bring these out from. You see, we're given these, these things as a test. It's only a loan, and its real purpose is an opportunity for us to show virtue. Solidarity is a word that we would use. Okay? Uh, this sort of selfless indifference. Okay? It may mean we end up becoming wealthy in the, in the process. Often it's necessary to become wealthy simply so you can manage things well. You know, just think if everyone was poor, you'd be able to build a Catholic university. Probably not. Okay? You need that kind of concentration and wealth. But it's not ours. That's the important thing here. But then if you cannot be trusted in what is not yours, who will give you what is your very own? Now this, who will give you what is your very own? What's our very own? If we don't own anything, if I don't own my arms and legs, I don't own my wealth, what is it that's really mine? That I kind of trade in my wealth for? See, this fellow was actually doing. The bad servant here, the crafty steward, was actually doing exactly the will of God. He was using something that wasn't his, Right? to change for something that was going to be his. Okay, Why did God make us? To know, love and serve him in this life and be with him forever in the next. That is the one thing, in a sense, that is really ours, that God intends us to be with him forever in heaven, unless we goof it up.
1: Yeah?
0: And so what our blessed Lord is saying here is, Who will give you what is your very own? If we goof up on the stuff which is not ours, which is our wealth, my arms and legs and my cleverness and all the rest of it, I won't get what is really mine, which is what God intended for me. You know, for all eternity, God wanted me to be with him in heaven. I won't get it, even though it's really mine. While I'm sort of preoccupied with my four-wheel drive and my, you know, whatever else it is that sort of is my wealth. Stupidity. But it's what we all do. Okay. No servant can be the slave of two masters and he will either hate the first and love the second or treat the first with respect and the second with scorn. You cannot be a slave of both God and money. And this last point, I'll just kind of close with this. because You can have a little, I won't say a giggle, but um, there's some sort of curious things about this notion that there is a tension between God and money. Now, I'm not saying that you have to be poor, but you can't serve both God and money. And one way or another we tend to end up Serving our wealth. Um, and, and there are uh, a bunch of places where in the scriptures uh, we end up with this tension between God and money. And I think the most extraordinary or most interesting example in some ways, yeah, I found eight, eight, eight places through the Gospels, and I won't go through them now, um, where there's this real, you know, what do you choose, God or money? This is one of them. But one of the curious examples is um, where Judas accepts the 30 pieces of silver. What's he saying? 30 pieces of silver is more important than God himself. Now that's probably the most extreme kind of trade-off where someone basically gives away the most precious thing in all of existence for some wealth you know, enough to buy a paddock, you know, the potter's field. Yeah, But isn't it a stupid and empty sort of thing that he did?
1: Yeah,
0: And so that's kind of the last thing I just really wanted to finish off with. That, you see, what we see is that property is a gift. It is there as a test for us. It's an opportunity to build up these real things, to realise the thing which is really ours, especially through this indifference, as, as you as you quite well pointed out. Um but it, it, it's to there, and the real purpose of it is to make friends. Right. And all the different ways that we do that, through our employees, through our family, um, through our customers and all the rest of it. Okay. So that's kind of, if you like, a fairly brief walkthrough.
1: You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Dr. Garrick Small. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org do